Let's pray. Lord, we need your spirit to uh, lead us into truth, to help us know you more, to know you clearer, to know your ways. Thank you for the uh, opportunity to look at your word and uh, for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I hand out the notes for tonight, if you weren't here last week and you didn't get notes, if you'd let Mary know, she'll print some up for you. Uh, we actually ran out of all the ones for last week. We had a few extras, but hang on to those for tonight. Don't pass those out yet. But I was talking last week about recognizing that sometimes we have filters that we read the Bible through. For those of you who are here or listen to it. Uh, but one of the filters I didn't mention, and I'm just going to say that early, just kind of this is my stalling until anyone who's late before we get started on tonight's lesson. Uh, but one of the filters that we often read the Bible through is our own experience. And so we have a certain experience and we read the Bible from that standpoint and we expect it to, to uh, confirm what we are. And, and one of the greatest illustrations theologically in history is... Uh, a guy named Augustine. Augustine was a Greek orator who got saved later in life. But before he got saved, he spent about uh, 15 years living with a woman who wasn't his wife and came to the feeling in his heart that the very act of sexual intercourse was sinful. That was his, his thinking. And so then he went to the Bible and he found Psalm 51, verse 5. This says, Behold, I was born in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And he interpreted that to say that he was, that, you know, he was born in sin. What it actually says is that my mother was sinning when I was conceived, which is a crazy thought. David writing this because David's one of the only kings in Israel whose mother is never mentioned. Aha! Uh -huh. But he read it from that perspective. Now you would think that's no big deal, except that as a re result, he felt that any child who was born was born as a result of sinful intercourse, and therefore they were born in sin and needed to be baptized as they were children, or they would. If they died, they would be separated from God. And uh, that concept carried through in the Catholic Church for 2,000 years to the point where many people were taught that sex is sin. And so I've dealt with two couples in my ministry career who the uh, woman had a real problem ever consummating their marriage because she was raised with the idea that sex was sinful. All because someone read the Bible through their own experience. That has nothing to do with tonight, but I just thought I'd throw that in for fun. <laughs> Let's go on to something else. Just want you to understand, if you don't get your theology right, you could be affecting generations. Oh, <laughs> Okay, relational theology number two. If we'll pass out the, the notes, my wonderful wife has created notes for you.
from my chicken scratches so that with space for you to write things. Understanding that we're talking about a biblical theology. What does the Bible actually say? Later on, we will get to a lot of the questions that people have. Uh, but I don't want to start with the questions because the questions often, in order to answer them, we have to deal with all the preconceived, the filters that we often approach the Bible through. And that often takes much longer than just building a good, good foundation. So, if you're with me, starting in Genesis 1, we find that if you look at the Bible as a whole, the first four chapters are God's introduction to his plan that then goes awry, which we'll talk about, and then the rest of the, the Bible until the New Testament is a rebuilding of God's original plan. And so we learn a lot from the first four chapters, but we're going to start with the beginning. I was going to break into song, sound of music, but uh, I realize that we're recording this, and my kids will listen to this and rib me mercilessly about singing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Doesn't make a big issue, it just basically states the fact uh, we actually see in the first chapter of Genesis from 1 to about 25, creation, which is the setting for what God's doing. What we don't see is anything before the earth existed. God doesn't talk to us about that, at least here, or after the consummation. So we don't, we don't know what went on beforehand. Much of it is speculation. But... This story starts, it's actually the story of God's interaction with man. It starts with the creation of the earth. And so God created the heavens and the earth, all wonderful stuff. You've read it. I'm not going to read it all. We're not going to read the whole Bible in here. But just to say this, I'm going to make a, a real quick, few quick statements that creation is the setting for what God is going to be doing. We're going to see in a moment that man is the goal. Man wasn't a byproduct. Man was the purpose. Creation was the setting. So God created. Now, let me just digress real briefly on creation and evolution. I hope most of you know that evolution is a theory to replace the concept of creation. Okay? The assumption of evolution is that there is no supernatural, there is no God, therefore, how can we explain the origins if we take this supernatural force out of it? And so the whole concept of evolution is a theory that presents that. Now, what you often find is that people don't want to deal with evidence, so they make blanket statements. The science has been proven. Let me tell you, it hasn't been. Okay, many things it hasn't. But if you ever question the status quo, you just get slapped around. Uh, from a scientific perspective, you can't prove anything that's outside of the present. 
Okay, for those of you who are scientists, you know that science is all about reproducing what evidence is knowable. And so if you talk about something that's outside of a laboratory setting or outside of a present setting, you can't prove it. You can't prove that Napoleon existed. And so once you get outside of that immediate setting, you're talking about evidence, not proof. Right? And that's why in courtrooms, they talk about what is the evidence. Okay, even though they might have video of something happening, they can't prove it because they can't reproduce it. And so it's the evidence that points to something. Are you still with me? Let me say this real, real quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I've got books if you want to read it. The evidence for creation far outweighs any evidence for evolution. Okay, I'm going to give you real quick. Surge. Surge is real basic evidence. Of, one of the, the evidences from astronomy Surge is the, uh, S is the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says everything is running downhill. It's coming to a state of equilibrium. And so what that says is if there were an infinite amount of time, we would already have reached that equilibrium. And therefore, because we haven't yet, means that there was a beginning. Still with me. Common sense, right? Second law of thermodynamics is absolutely undisputed in science. Okay? You, the universe is expanding. This was uh, one of the things predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity, Big Bang, that the universe is expanding. Uh, Hubble with his telescope saw red shift in stars which said that they were actually receding proved to, to scientists that the universe is expanding, which is what you would expect with a Big Bang theory, which is pretty much accepted. The problem with that is that if it's expanding, it started somewhere. Einstein really did not like that. And one of his co-workers, a guy named Eddington, didn't like it. That really, they struggled with the idea because prior to his... Uh, ex experiments and uh, theories, the belief was that there was a static universe that had always existed. And now the evidence is pointing that it didn't always exist. Because again, if it's expanding, it must have started. You still with me? R, radiation from the Big Bang. They expected that there would be a some sort of radiation or energy that was a leftover from the Big Bang and they found that everywhere in the universe. And the only explanation is that it was left over from the beginning. Second was that the, uh, the galaxies are actually seeded. The explosion and expansion of the universe actually came in ripples that allowed things to coalesce. It's hard to understand, but scientists thought this was the greatest uh, find in the history of science, that the universe was expanding at such a rate that allowed 
things to actually come together and form galaxies, but not to at, at so great a rate that they would actually implode. So you don't need to understand that. Who cares? That's the, the R. The, the, that's the G. And then the E is the Einstein's general relativity. Bottom line is the Earth, I mean the universe, had a beginning. I've got a quote here. I think I wrote it down for you. Robert Jastrow, who is the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies, uh, who was also claims to be an agnostic. Atheist says he's not religious in any sense. He doesn't have a religious bone to, to grind. But he says this. Now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time, in a flash of light and energy. He said later, astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they've proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in the cosmos and on the earth. And they found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. So the essence of what I'm saying is for years, scientists have been trying to say the Bible's not accurate. But when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, science is proving that that's exactly what happened. Now, they might not say it was God, but they're coming to the exact same conclusion that something happened that began everything in an instant in time that they can't explain. But because they assume that there is no supernatural, they simply will rule out the fact that it could have been God. We know better. That's just bad science to rule out something before you've looked at the evidence. Okay, you still with me? There's a whole lot of stuff you can read if you're interested in that. Uh, we don't want to take all your time on that, but let me just say, uh, we don't have to be intimidated because the evidence very clearly says that that's true. Genesis 1, verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's why I said creation was the setting, man is the goal. Man was created in the image of God. Man was given dominion over everything. All this existed so that man would have a place to live. Man was not an evolutionary byproduct. It was the goal from the beginning. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want to jump into philosophy for a moment. Then we're going to come back to this. 
what it says, okay? Because I want to tell you this. The scientific definition of time is events that happen in sequence. What we call time, minutes, hours, seconds, is a measurement of those sequence. Do you understand the difference? Okay, if you look at the measurement of time, you know, it's, it's obvious that the, uh, the earth rotates morning, evening, but it wasn't until much later that someone decided to cut that up into 24 segments and called them hours. And then cut that up into 60 seconds and then cut that up. Okay, so time has to do with sequence. Okay, that's, it's important that we understand this for later on. We're going to come to this later because when we come to answering some of the questions that you had, you need to understand this. Time, the definition of time has to do with sequence as opposed to the measurement of time. And so it's important that we see something here. There is, the Bible is presented sequentially. There was a time when the earth didn't exist. And then it did. There was a time when God said, let us make man in our image. And he did. And man didn't exist before that. Why is that important? Because in Greek philosophy, guys like Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates said, if there's a God, if there is a God, then I would expect him to be immutable, which means unchanging, impassable, which means without emotion, and timeless. Now that's a philosophical concept that affected much of theology much later, because back to Augustine again, Augustine was a Greek orator who was a philosopher, was influenced by philosophy, and he picked up this concept and came out with this idea that God was timeless, that you find in Thomas Aquinas in the 1500s, you find in Calvin, in Calvinism, this idea that God is timeless. Okay, I've got three questions for you that we're going to answer at some point, maybe not today. Question number one, is God timeless or eternal? Eternal means with, without beginning or end. Timeless means without sequence. And so it led to C.S. Lewis's concept of the eternal now, that God just sits in this pool of everything's, everything's now with God. There is no past, there is no, no future the concept, unfortunately, what that does is it eliminates the interaction with man. It eliminates, it creates a, a concept of God that at best, even though it doesn't fit the, the theory, at best he started things and he's removed from it. Because you can't actually interact with man because he sits in this timeless, uh, eternal now concept. Okay, second question. Is there a difference between God being unchanging and God changing his mind? Unchanging means character and essence. Changing someone's mind means they can have interaction, they can think. Understand this, that emotion 
is a product of sequence. If I one time feel sad and another time feel happy, there has to be some sequence. I can't feel sad and happy at the same time. I can feel nothing, which is what the Greeks, why the Greeks believed that God was impassable, had no emotion. But we're going to see, I think, that that's not actually what the Bible says. And the third question is what I just said, does God have emotions? So I want you to write those down and keep them in mind. And as you read through the Bible, take a look and say, okay, before you come with a preconceived filter, what does the Bible say? What does God say? See, the Bible is God's revelation of himself. What does God say about himself? Not what does Plato or Aristotle say about God. What does God say about himself? That's what we're looking at. Second thing we see here is that God is relational. Let us make man in our image. Now I'm using relational. You could use community. You could use team. You could use plurality. Whatever term you want, there is something of a communal relational aspect there because not only is God that way but he made that man that way he made us in the image of God relational but he also made us male and female why have you ever thought about that why did God make his image male and female because there's something of relationship there's something of thing that reflects God's heart in that we have relationship. We were made for relationship. And so the fact that we are communal or relational is a direct reflection of how God made us, which is a direct reflection of how he is. All this we're getting from Genesis 1, and a whole lot more if we had time. So, not only is man made to be relational, let us make man in our image, but he's also made or given dominion and authority or rulership. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Bless them, and God said, and subdue it and have dominion. Three times it says we're made in the image of God, and three times it says that we have dominion or rule. And so what we can understand is that God made this setting. He made man to have relationship with him and to rule over this setting that he made. All that from here. This is, this is the introduction. This is what, what the original order was about. This is what God's plan was. Now if we cheat and we look at the end of the book, we see something of a bride for Christ. Revelation 19. And verse uh, 7 to 9 says, uh, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And then one more in chapter 21, from verse 9. 
one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last place came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear and as crystal. So we're going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to give you a, a whole timeline of the Bible here, okay? Fiona, if you'd stand over on this side of the room. Johan, if you'd stand over on this side of the room. Huh? I'm gonna send you all the way to the other side. Okay. In fact, you can lay down on the floor. Go, go ahead. Okay. This is the end of the book. This is the, the precious bride for Christ. This is the beginning of the book. And this is God making man. Adam. And looking down the corridor of time, seeing the goal. And he makes this man with the capacity of relationship and rulership. Why? Because from this man will come men and women who will become the very bride of Christ. They needed the capacity for relationship and they also needed the capacity for rulership. They're going to become the bride of the king of the universe. See the end. So God was looking down, knew the, knew the end from the beginning, looked down the court of time and made him with all that right there. No, no, you can leave. So when we say that man was made for relationship and rulership, we're talking about the ingredients to be a bride of Christ. Another word is intimacy and impact. Man was made for intimacy and impact. Relationship and rulership. My wife added in parentheses on my notes. Relationship is intimacy. Rulership is impact. So you still with me? We see something of God's plan and purpose, his original order, what he made man for, and then we see the whole thing come crashing down. It's called the fall. The loss of God's original order. Now, if you read chapter two, it's a kind of a review again of the creation from a little bit different perspective. From man's perspective, there's a whole lot of things as you read. I mean, we could get into all the details, but I want to kind of hit the high points. Uh, I don't want to get too much, but what you see in there is that God put man in charge of this garden that he had made, this place where he lived, brought all the animals to him, and he named them, Adam named them, and that was their name. He had exercising the dominion or the rule that God had given him. And then in the process, God realized that he needed the, uh, the female with him. So obviously chapter one was that, that big overview introduction. Then we get into a little bit of the details. But he puts them in this garden and he says that you can eat of all the trees, everything except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, you guys all know the story. Uh, and then we get over in chapter 3. 
the temptation and the fall. And uh, it tells us some things very clearly. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, And the serpent was more cunning than all the beasts of the field. And uh, said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He said, Didn't God say you can eat of everything? And she said, we may eat of the, the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree of fruit of the tree which is in the, midst, the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. Totally contradicted God. It says, But God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the basis of sin is basically, I can do it myself. I don't need God. I can decide good and evil. I don't want to walk in relationship with God. See, they were given dominion or rulership as long as they were in relationship. The two weren't separated. They were made in God's image for relationship, and in that relationship, they were given authority over the planet as long as they were in relationship. I kind of think that we, when we understand this rebelling against God's ways, it's basically, I, I know better. Now, we're going to see throughout the rest of the Bible and history that sin is that basic rebellion that I can do it myself. Philosophy is I can know truth through my own human reasoning. Religion is I can make myself better. I don't need a sacrifice. I can do it. Bottom line is I can do it. In fact, uh, I read a while back that the number one song chosen at funerals in the U.S. is Frank Sinatra's My Way. And I actually happened to write it into your notes there because I want to read it to you. I don't want you to have to write it down. But I just want you to hear. This is, as people are dying, the number one song they choose. And now the end is near. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway. And more, much more, I did it, I did it my way. Regrets I've had a few, but then again too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it, I did it my way. I was in charge of all my actions. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew. And through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all and I stood tall. I did it, I did it my way. I've loved, laughed and cried. I've had my fill my share of losing, and now my tears subside. I find it all so amusing. And to think I did all that, and may I say, not in a shy way. No, no, not me. I did it my way. For what is a man, and what has he got? If not himself, then he is not. Not to say the things he truly feels, uh, to say the things he truly feels, and not the words of someone who kneels, 
The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. The epitome of independence, which is the value of our culture. I did it my way. I'm declaring it, and not even shyly. I'm proclaiming it with pride. We've taken what God had established and it's been so perverted that we don't even realize that what we're then uh, championing is a direct opposite of what God's original order was. So, with sin, with this fall, he said, you'll surely die. A number of things happened. One was a loss of relationship with God. When he said, in the day you eat of it, you will die, Adam lived to be almost 900 years old. He didn't die, if we look at the natural, but he died spiritually. He was cut off from God. Where he used to have this intimacy and this fellowship, he didn't have it anymore because he had rebelled. Where he was actually going to live for whatever, eternally, we don't know how long, thing is, the Bible doesn't tell us the time frame. It seems like God made this in the first day. They fell. But it doesn't actually say that. There's no time frame there at all. In fact, there's probably quite a long time frame. And so if we read what the Bible says and not what it doesn't say, we don't know how many kids they had. Uh-oh. They lost relationship with God. That's the key. We see that then God's plan. I'm getting ahead of myself. But not only did they lose relationship, but they lost rulership. Man's dominion, man's rule of the planet was dependent on relationship with God. And so what happened is the serpent, Satan, is now the ruler of this world. Why did Satan tempt Eve? Because he wanted to ruin God's plan? Yes, but because he wanted to take over. So he's now the ruler of this world. John 14, 30, 12, 31, both Jesus says of the Satan, he's the ruler of this world. So we have this plan that God set up and made man to have this intimate relationship with him. And in that, he delegated rule over the whole planet. And man, thinking he could do it without God, broke away from that, lost relationship, and lost the rule of the planet. That's the situation we find ourselves when we get to Genesis 6. God had this great plan, and it was destroyed. But go with me to uh, chapter 5. Oh, no, actually, before I get there, I'm, I'm running ahead of myself. Let me say this from verse 6 of chapter 3. Satan says, knowing 
you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and, and a tree desirous to make one wise, and took of its fruit and ate. And she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. What it says, I want you to understand this. She's talking with the serpent who deceives her. But it makes it very clear, Adam's standing right there with her. And he wasn't deceived. How do I know? Because in Timothy it says, she was deceived and he wasn't. Most of us, we read Timothy and we think, she's the problem. She was deceived. I used to have this idea in my mind when I was younger, having heard these stories, that she was there by herself in the garden. The, the devil, the serpent came and deceived her. She took the fruit, ate it, and then she went and found her husband somewhere and gave it to him. Didn't tell him what it was. And so she, she was the problem. But what this says and added to Timothy is just the opposite. She was deceived. She had not heard from God directly not to eat that. She had heard from Adam. Because when God told them, she wasn't around yet. Yet she's there. She's deceived and gives it to him who is with her. Do you understand what that's saying? Just the opposite of our concept that she was the problem and he wasn't. She was deceived. That's what Timothy says. She was deceived and he wasn't. But that's not what God's saying. She was the problem because she was deceived. He was the problem because he wasn't deceived and he ate it anyway. Now that opens up a whole nother issue that we'll get to when we get to, to restoration. But I want you to understand that. He says all these things are going to happen as a result. Uh, she actually says, sorry, I keep getting ahead of myself. God finally finds them in the garden in verse 13 and said to the woman, what is this you've done? And she said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So God says to the serpent, you're going to be destroyed eventually. And he says to the woman, I'll greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. And he says to the Man, because you heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you, and in toil you shall eat it all the days of your life. It's going to be difficult. And so God sent him out of the garden. And then you get the story of Cain and Abel. Now, understand, I'm trying to get to chapter 5, but I can't get there quickly understand what it says here and it says now Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain he said I've acquired a man from the Lord and she bore again this time his brother Abel Abel was a keeper of sheep but Cain was a ruler of the ground and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, and he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. 
What does it not say? God never told them, bring an offering of animals. Does it? They brought an offering and God's instructing them in what offerings he prefers. So he said, I prefer this one and not this one. That's what it says. And Cain was very angry. And his countenance fell. Cain initiated this. If you read it, he initiated it. He brought an offering to God. Abel said, oh, that's a good idea. You're bringing an offering to God of the fruit of the ground. I'll bring an offering of the, the uh, firstborn of the flock. You're doing this. And God says, great idea, guys. But let me tell you, because of something in the future, I prefer this offering and not this one. And Cain got angry. Instead of saying, oh, okay, that's a good idea. He got angry, and God says, why are you angry? Now, our concept is that God told them beforehand to bring an offering of the flock, which it never says, and he didn't do it, and so he got angry because God didn't accept his offering. God, actually, they brought the offerings, and God's just actually giving them some instruction I prefer this. He doesn't say why, but we know from reading later on the purpose for that. But he gets angry. I worked hard at this. I think I'd be angry. Instead of hearing what God was saying. And God is kind of surprised. Why are you angry? Now, are you still with me? Do you see how we can read it with preconceived ideas? And we miss, we almost think, God's angry. But what happens then, says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He's just actually setting up the, the first standard of what doing well is. He hasn't told them beforehand. He's telling you, now I prefer this. And if you do well, you'll be accepted. God's not upset. But if you do not do, do well, sin lies at the door. And it's desires for you, but you should rule over it. And you know the story. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then Cain is banished. Where's the question? Verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, and Cain knew his wife. What? Where'd he get a wife? See, it doesn't tell us that Cain and Abel were the only kids that Adam and Eve had. It doesn't tell us how long the time frame was. Okay, if we read it without and read more into it than it says, we think this was their first kids. 
All it says is that Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore a child. This could have been ages, hundreds of years. We don't know. So he finds a family and goes on that, that uh, Adam knew his wife again and she bore another son, named him Seth. Chapter 5. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Fourth time, he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness, in his image, and named him Seth. We know he wasn't his first son. But we know this son, we start the genealogy from which comes Jesus. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. And Adam lived, and all the days Adam lived were 935 years, and he died. I think that's the end of the introduction. But do you see something here? Verse 1, God created man, and he made an image in the likeness of God. Verse 3, Seth begot a son in his own image, in his own likeness, after his own image. Something's changed. Now we have a diminishing image of God. Originally made in God's image, but now being made in the image of the parents. Diminishing. Over the time frame, what happens? The image of God is diminished. Our identity is diminished. As sons and daughters of God to being sons and daughters of our parents. Everything changes. I think we then see the next section start here, which is really what it is, is the genealogy of Noah which is God beginning to restore his original order. Now, in the big picture, what is he restoring? He's restoring relationship, and he's restoring rulership. Both of those. Now, interesting, we're going to see next week that when it comes to the covenant with Noah... He gives them the same mandate, be fruitful and multiply, but never tells them to have dominion. In all the covenants, that doesn't come up until Jesus. Whoa. I said, in the, in the, the covenant, I shared last week, what the Bible is, is a story of... a succession of covenants and in the first one with Noah he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth but he never tells them to have dominion and subdue it in all the subsequent covenants that never comes up until you get to Jesus all authority has been given to me that that's cool when we get there but we're seeing God's plan and so from here over the rest of the 
book, we see the restoration of God's original order. Okay, you have to understand, there was an introduction, God's plan, this is how it's going to be, this is his plan, and it all falls off a cliff because of sin, and then God starts over in this revelation of who he is and his plans in a restoration of not only relationship, but rulership. Not only intimacy, but impact. And we see that through the subsequent revelations. Okay? Are you still with me? You need to get that in your head because you're going to see throughout the rest of the Bible those two things, relationship and rulership. Just as a, a teaser, we see when it gets to Moses, which is a revelation that uh, a covenant that has to do with, with relationship with God, we see two things. We see the tabernacle, which signifies God will dwell in their midst, and we see them being promised a land that they will have rulership over. You've got to understand that, because when we get there, you're going to be really confused if you don't, because the commandments he gave were broken into two total different categories. Some had to do with relationship, but a whole of them had to do with just living in the land. They had nothing to do with relationship. This is just how you live. Do these things and you'll be blessed. Don't kill people. Not if you don't kill people, I'll like you more. No, if you don't kill people, you'll live in the land. You still with me? Deep breath. When we understand, and I shared last week, and I, uh, I drew a progressive revelation because virtually God's starting over again. What do I do with my... And so, do I have a... I do. There's a marker right there. I mean, an eraser. So we have this wonderful beginning, and then the whole thing dies. And then we see this wonderful revelation. God starts over. It's a progressive revelation. As I shared last week, it's kind of like learning math. You start with a little bit, and we see these covenants. Now, I've drawn it this way because there's a, a covenant and then there's some literature around that covenant. There's some writing that, that kind of introduces that and then talks about that. And if you understand the Bible this way, it's not written as a single story. It's a whole lot of uh, circular stories. And so you have these covenants... ending in the new covenant. And all these are a progressive revelation of how God is and how he works. These people had gotten so bad, we're going to see next week, that they'd lost any conception of God. In fact, they had to start over. They got so bad that the, every thought and intent of their heart was only evil continually. That's what Genesis 6 says. I mean, when it went downhill, it went downhill really bad. 
And so God starts over. So you get that covenant with Noah. You get the covenant with Abraham. You get the covenant with uh, Moses and Israel. Because it wasn't actually with Moses. Though it's considered, it's called the Mosaic Covenant. You get the covenant with David. And ultimately you get the covenant with Jesus. This covenant, as we're going to see, has to do with trusting God. This covenant had to do with the land. He had no conception of another religion. He only had a conception of taking a land. Having a place to live. Why is that important? Because he's restoring both relationship and rulership. He's teaching people how to rule again and how to have relationship. Okay, so we're going to look at these over the next few weeks. Unfortunately, there's a whole lot in each one of these that we could spend a lot of time with. Uh, we're not going to do that. I'm going to try and deal with one a week. I might actually get two here in the first week. Uh, so I just want you to understand that in the big picture, what we're seeing is God restoring his original plan. And so there's a whole lot that to understand, this diminishing image of God. Now there's a whole lot more in there as well. But you get this diminishing image of God, you get, there's this conception that many people have that the people who lived in the past were much smarter. How did they do all the things they did? How did they create all the things they did? Maybe they were actually closer in relationship with God. Can I just jump back to one thing when it comes to the creation? I missed this in my notes and I missed it right here. But I want to point out something. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. This isn't the sun and the moon. They don't come until day four. This is just light. Don't know what all that means, but all of a sudden there was light. Uh, uh, and God saw the light, it was good, and he divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, there wasn't an evening and morning, because there wasn't any sun or moon or anything, but it was just a time frame that it was broken up into. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so and God called the firmament heaven so the evening and the morning was the second day have any of you ever read that and went what in the world is that talking about you figured it out tell us there you go there you go. So he makes 
He makes this land that's, that's mostly water because later on he says that he, he makes the, the dry land appear. And he says he makes this firmament, but the term firmament he calls heaven. And it separates this water from this water. Here's a wild thought for you. The firmament he made that separated the waters from the waters was the atmosphere. I'm just throwing that out as for fun because some believe that there was a circle of water that encircled the whole planet above the atmosphere that created a greenhouse effect which is why plants grew without any rain because we see in chapter 3 or whatever it is that it, or 2 it didn't rain that's important to, to note and so when it says that he separated those and then created dry land all, all the I don't know where the continents were. Australia was down here somewhere. No, maybe they were one. I don't know. Uh, but there's many who believe that the flood, which we're going to talk about next week, was this water coming down. Which is a wild thought. Again. We don't know exactly what that means, but it could mean something like that. It separated the waters from the waters. And he called the firmament heaven. You remove this water, and heaven exceeds, extends. There's no limit. Have, heavens in the highest heavens can't contain you. So at that point, in, when Solomon says that in the Second Kings 7, he's not saying this heaven, because that's actually what he called heaven, right? The firmament between the waters. You don't have to accept this because it's not very clear. I've just thrown out an idea to help us understand some of the things that we often don't understand. So... Here's a wild thought. Could this have produced a setting ideally suited for man to live long? Could there have been a higher degree of oxygen that allowed man to use more of his brain? Scientists say we use about 10% of our mental capacity. What would happen if we could use 100%? Do you think God made us to use 10% or is 10% the diminishing image of God over thousands of years? The what? <laughs> God said it was good. He created this setting to put man and it was good. It was probably a whole lot better than we th can think of it being. 
we think of what we know a little bit nicer. But what if it was the whole thing was designed to be a perfect setting? Yeah. So, just a thought, we're going to come back next week and talk about God's restoration plan. We're going to see how bad it got first. And then we're going to go from there to see God's plan. And believe me, when we get to the end, it's incredible. Any questions? Mary has a question. This whole thing, you said that God didn't initiate Abel, you know, the sacrifice thing. But the seed that they had even before that in Genesis 3, 21, that for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And I always pictured that, you know, God initiated that, and he was actually covering their shame. And to do that, he had to slay an animal. Yeah, and, and it's often taught that way. And, it, and what you're saying is that when God killed the animals and made coverings for Adam and Eve, that was the seed of sacrifice and of ultimately the covenant of Christ. And many have taught it that way. And it, and it could be, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say it was a sacrifice. Now, we can assume, but God never says, when you bring me an offering... Bring me animals to be killed. And that could be it too. It could be that one brought something. That was the fruit of what he labored from the cursed land. And one brought something that, again, it could be. It just doesn't say that. And so... uh, at this point, anything beyond what it says, we have to speculate. Firstborn of the flock. Yeah. Which, which again, later on, when we get to the, uh, the covenant with Moses, one of the mandates was that they bring the firstborn of the flock as a sacrifice. And so again, that could be looking forward. But at this point, they don't know what's going to be. They only know what is. And what is, is that they brought these sacrifices. So there could be a whole lot of things. And I'm not saying you have to accept this. I'm, I'm just saying that it seems like God hadn't told them beforehand. Now, it could be that he brought something that was cursed to the ground and didn't realize that it was. That was his his sincerely genuine sacrifice and God is just beginning to bring some understanding right at the beginning that no I actually prefer this sacrifice 
And it could be because that sacrifice is from the land that, ground that's cursed. This sacrifice is from the, uh, the animals that were created. Uh, again, we don't actually know. But the bottom line is he's beginning to bring some understanding what he wants. And so his, the understanding we see is that God's beginning to say, hey, of these two, this is the one I prefer. Yes, it doesn't say that he slaughtered them to take them. He just took their skin off. <laughs> but a bunch of naked animals running around without any skin. <laughs> okay, I think I talked a lot faster than I thought I would. So I've reached the, uh, the conclusion early. You get an early night tonight. Unless you have any other questions or perspective or comments. Go ahead. I'm never sorry. And... and What's the, sorry, what's the point? I, I missed it. Good. So hold that thought. We'll, we'll get there when we get to that, uh, that point. Uh, one of my frustrations in, in this is that I can't just tell you all of it all at once. <laughs> uh, that we actually have to do it bit by bit. God had an a original intent and he makes it very clear and I think when we understand that he's bringing us back to that original intent not back to the garden back to something else back to his original intent which is a bride or a new Jerusalem or it's it's, it's Joham and Fiona together and uh, when we understand that and we understand that it, that what was lost was both relationship and rulership now, why is that important? Because for many years, many people think it's only relationship. And they don't understand the rulership part. And so, with the understanding of relationship being restored, and we're going to get to this later on, relationship being restored is because of what Jesus has done, the sacrifice he's made. It's all of grace. God reached out to us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's grace. 
But rulership is partnering with God and walking in step with the Spirit, hearing His voice, obeying what He says. Not in order to be accepted by God, but in order to, rest to restore, have an impact that He intends for us to have. And so if we only think of it as relationship, then what we do is write off all this other part and say anything that has to do with obedience is law. It's legalism. Let's get rid of it. We're all about grace. We are all about grace when it comes to relationship. But we understand that we're made for both and God's restoring both. When he talks about obedience, when he talks about walking in step with the Spirit, when he talks about obeying his voice, he's not talking about doing this in order to be accepted by God. He's talking about now that we're accepted, let's partner with him to see his kingdom advanced. And so when we understand those two, we don't separate, we don't write off parts of the Bible. There's guys that I know who have so embraced this side that they've actually said anything else on this side should be removed from the Bible. Because that's old. 1 Peter 1 says you were called. And it says you were called according to the foreknowledge and sanctification of God. That you might obey. Let's just wipe that verse out of the Bible. Now if you only understand, if you're only thinking in terms of relationship then that's a tough one. It's like I have to obey in order to be accepted. But it's not about relationship at all. It's about that we walk in obedience to have an impact. That's why it's important that we understand those two. If we don't, one of two things happen. We either turn our whole Christianity into a non-relational positional thing Or we end up writing off parts of the Bible. Or we actually just let religion come back in and legalism affect us. So God's restoring. Yes. What, which movement? I'm sorry. So, word of faith, like the NAR, yeah. like they have that dominion. Yeah, that's part of it, yeah. That we have dominion. We have dominion over all the works of the enemy. We have dominion over the planet. Uh, we have dominion over the, the animals. Uh, I mean, there, there are those who believe that. I think what, what we're going to see as we get that far is that those things are being restored. They haven't been restored yet. Okay, and it's not because I believe it that I have dominion, it's because God's actually doing it. You know, and so uh, we're going to see what it gets to at that point. But yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot of things. You know, we talked about uh, last week uh, dispensationalism, which breaks up all of history into these movements of God. There's guys who've gotten caught up in, just as guys have got caught up in this side on the whole grace thing and, and have done away with everything else, you've got guys who've got, got caught up in this side.
and have said, kingdom now, we're, we're it. We're the rulers of the planet. God gave us authority. We're it. Now, you can, again, get so caught up in that that you lose the fact that now it comes down to relationship. We only have dominion as we have relationship. And so uh, we're going to see, I hope you're going to see, that God's restoration included a people, a group, before it included everyone. Okay, it included, God picked a man, Abraham, and he created a nation that he began to teach how to walk in relationship and rulership. And then he extended that to every people. And in the end, it will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so the goal is still expanding. Israel was not God's plan A that failed and God had to do plan B with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus was always plan A. Wonderful. Lord, thank you for your word, for your truth. Help us not to get confused, but to grow in relationship with you and in your ways. Lord, I believe that you're wanting to raise up of people who do understand the intimacy of relationship in your grace, but also that you're looking for us to partner with you to see your kingdom extended. In Jesus' name, amen.